But I say that my breakdown wasn't a spontaneous combustion precipitated by a single event, but a lifetime of smoldering embers that finally caught fire and incinerated everything in their path. I love that. Do you know anything about business news? And I was like, I hated business news. I didn't know shit about business news. And I was like, absolutely. I love business news. I love it all day, every day. And I lied. I totally lied. And I said, balance and chaos have to coexist. Mm. They, they must. And so I looked at it as the superpower and I realized though that there is no external solution to an internal problem. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute honor our last day here in new york city downtown here in soho we have nicole lappin so nice to have you here save the best for last baby I, best for last indeed it's so good to have you here Thank you. it's so good to be here like new york Times best-selling author you've literally you've written a library from what i can tell yep, from what we've got here. how library. many books have you written many libraries many libraries well the the jury's out on this one so i had rich bitch boss bitch becoming superwoman and yep. then i just launched the superwoman journal that goes yep. along with becoming superwoman so I can't tell if that's like three and a half. Does the journal count as a full one? Is it four? Oh, I've got two titles for you though. Think? Yeah. Nice bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I like and it. And zen bitch. <laughs> zen bitch. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. All the bitches. All the bitches. All the bitches. <laughs> like you can have a culmination. You sell them all together. Aussie bitch. It's coming great. out. It's so great to have you here. Uh, and as I said, like I've just, in my research where I learned so much about so you, much. I know nothing about you, which is great. <laughs> and <laughs> which is going to be make this interview even more interesting. But even just from our conversation right now, I can see you've got chops, you've got massive personality. Do you I'm, have I'm that? I'm lacking so much. Personality is not one of them. Well, no, but Thanks. do you have that saying over here? You've got chops? Chops? Chops. Like meat chops? No, well, in Australia, we say if you've got chops, you know how to talk. Like you're oh. a good communicator. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's... Stop flapping. So it's like we say stop flapping your chops for no reason. Like. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> Flapping chops. Yeah. That's a really interesting so visual. People are sitting there right now thinking about flapping like pork yeah. chops in the air, but no, or lamb chops. I'm here for it. Thank you. <laughs> Vegans unite. <laughs> <laughs> we we're going to do a vegan TikTok challenge. So I'm super curious. Like, uh, as I was scanning your profile on Instagram last night, in a not while you were on in, a date. While I was on a date. Thank you very much for throwing me in that one. That. Audience will love that. Um, I was actually super fascinated. Like, the, the more I scroll, I was like, okay. First of all, I was like, okay, another author. And then I was like, wow, okay, you've actually got a bit of a story. Like you've got a bit of a history, you've got a bit of an origin. And so the more I scrolled, the more interested I became. And that's when I stopped. And then you stopped the date. And she was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to see if I could get curious about you. And the moment I got mm. curious about you, I was like, yeah, I want to know more. I stopped looking. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to save it for the conversation. And so you live in New York City. Um, you have for how long? I live at the airport, I feel like. Oh, more right. So. Yeah. Okay. Like at the, the Holiday Inn? Like. <laughs> I feel like I live at the Delta Terminal, yeah, the right. Delta Lounge. Yeah, I'm okay. always like, oh, you guys got new art. And they're like, you need a life. Like, go home. Do you have a home? Um, What's that movie with Tom Hanks where he lives in the airport? I feel like that. Yeah, okay. I feel like the lady version of that. Yeah, wow. uh, but I've lived in 15 cities in the Holy last... Smokes. 20 or so years, yeah, building okay. a broadcast career. You go to like small markets and in theory you mess up there, I mess up everywhere and then you work your way up to network and all of that. And so I came to New York about 10 years ago when I yeah, started right. at CNBC. Okay. Yeah. But what I'm curious to know is where did it all begin? Like where where were you born? And Oh, we're going to the womb. We're going to the Ooh, womb, baby. Let's, go, okay. let's be womates for a little bit. Sweet. Okay. Um, I grew up in an immigrant family, no first kidding. generation American. Yeah. Where are you from? What's your ethnicity? Um, Israel. 
Both of my parents Whoa. immigrated. They both grew up on a kibbutz, which is like an orphanage in Israel. Oh my and yeah, I never read the Wall Street Journal or anything growing up, which is- You were born here though. Which is cuckoo that I am a money expert. Yeah. Uh, fast forward. I was born in LA. Okay. Yeah. Whereabouts in LA? Um, so originally in Orange County, but not the fancy part, uh, <laughs> not where you have like cappuccinos at school, yeah. um, and then LA proper, and then I went to school in Chicago at Northwestern. Wow, that's quite a bit of a flip. Like, how old were you when you went to, moved to Chicago? I was really young, so okay. I skipped a bunch of grades and because you were just too smart. I was just wicked smart, yeah. and I started college really early, and I went to. College and high you like school. a Doogie Howser or something? They, yeah, some like small newspapers did call me that actually. Really? Yeah, but hopefully a little bit cuter than that. Um, <laughs> Very cute Doogie Howser. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, I, I kind of was like a, I don't know, a child star where I kind of grew up on the air. So I started on the air actually at fifteen. Really? Yeah. So that makes me curious. Like you started on the air at fifteen. What was that? Was that a job or was that just you were? It was local. Standing beside the weatherman. <laughs> oh my god! It was like local cable access, really yeah. small channel six, and I went in because in high school I wasn't good at much. I mean, I'm not good at much right now, um, but I was trying to find my way, like a lot of, you know adolescents trying to figure out where they belong and what they're good at. And this is in Chicago? This is in LA. Oh, this is in LA. Yeah. Right, and okay. so then I went to this little broadcasting station and I was like, okay, maybe I'll try to be the interviewer for the movie reviews. And so I prepared this little movie review and I went and I auditioned and I saw the list come out and I didn't get the movie reviewer thing and I was really pissed and I was like, God, I like, I'm never going to get good at anything. I'm never going to make something out of my life because I grew up in a super broken home. Like that's a whole other podcast okay. um, where I just wanted to start working and I wanted to hide from like a super traumatic, uh, crazy upbringing. And uh, I left the list and then people were like, wait, 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 you're the, you're the main anchor. You got the main anchor job. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I got the the main job? I didn't even want that job. Everybody had to just audition for that as well. And so I was like, oh, it was like 15. You got anchor at 15? Yeah. Was this a regional, like, country? It was super local access. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. It was like, not, it to, was not, not to play any... it down, but I'm oh, like, no, that's no, amazing. Please play it down. <laughs> oh, no. It was like four people were watching. <laughs> wow. Um, but, you know, I was like, oh, I could be good at this. And uh, then I just continued on and I rose the ranks really, really quickly. So at what point did you know you the wanted chops, to The chops, with the chops. I flapped the chops, the chops all across chops, the country. <laughs> Pork chops everywhere. <laughs> So at what point did you know that you wanted to be in front of the camera? It was then. It was like sort of by so accident. So you had near, not even thought about being in journalism, not even thought about being a presenter, No, TV. and what's crazy is if you really want to get deep, yeah, um, I had a lot of trauma from news growing up. Um, my family was on the news in a bad way and I was never allowed to watch it. Wow. So sometimes you're drawn to the things that hurt you most. Wow. And so I would, you know be scared of reporters growing up. And then I got into the thing that, you know, I felt so negatively toward and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make this different and wow. I'm going to be here to write the first draft of history. And I had all these like big grandiose philosophies around it. So was there any part of your conscious that was aware at the age of 15 that you were actually conquering like a massive trauma? Totally not. Like totally totally not. I didn't know what trauma <laughs> was until like a few years ago. I didn't even know that you was like a like three therapists. I don't know. Like. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Definitely not at the time. I didn't, you know, when you grow up in such a fucked up environment, my father was a drug addict um, and an alcoholic and died of an overdose ultimately when I was 11. Wow. Um, you know, I didn't know that that was weird. You know, there was never a week that went by that police weren't at my house and uh, prostitutes and drugs and guns and craziness. And I didn't, and social workers, like I didn't know that was weird. And that until you mom. realize yeah. that it's not, it's not whatever, what where's, happens to everybody. Where's mom in all of this? You know, she, um, she peaced out and right. uh, she actually, you know, um, 
was a whole other, this is a whole other podcast. Yeah, I'm totally okay. derailing. I, no, I, I feel I just, like I'm taking, I'm taking the chops over. No, not at all. I'm okay. interested in you. This is you. you. Part of Thank your you. story is, you know, part of your grit. And again, the reason I, I kind of go here is because oftentimes people will see, you know, the, the, the stunningly beautiful woman who's got the incredible broadcasting career. Wait, where? <laughs> Thank <laughs> I'm you. Talking, <laughs> and tears. Um, but they don't relate to that you know what so oftentimes what people yeah. will relate to is oh yeah my dad was a drade oh yeah my, my parents broke up like yeah. for me like I, that's where i i want to find out more about you like what makes you real yeah, yeah if that's okay i got so much realness i got um, realness out, for days spread it like peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't, failure wasn't an option okay. uh, for me. I didn't have like a couch to go back and crash at. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was three. They went through this crazy trial and my, my, my mother kidnapped me, changed my name. Like I got into a whole wow. lifetime movie. Like I had a okay. whole lifetime of trauma yeah. that I didn't even know. Um, and what happened was that I worked and worked some more and I self-prescribed for myself, not drugs or alcohol, yeah, but work to hide from this. Interviews. Yeah. So you became a workaholic. I did. Okay. And I, my goal in life was to be an anchor on CNN after, you know, I fell into this profession. Yeah. Um, and I got there when I was 21, which is like super high class problems because that's your goal in life. But I also see the challenge with that, getting such a big goal at such an early age. Cause I know for myself, like when I hit one of my first big goals at the age of 27. Literally for two weeks, I was like, ooh. And then like on the 15th day, I was like, hmm. Right, I have to the keep raising the stopped. bar. Right. Well, it wasn't even so much I have to keep working. I was like, was that it? Like I thought I've arrived now. I thought oh. all this feeling was going to go now. It's like, fuck, I still feel just as insecure. I feel just as... <laughs> it was like... Imposter syndrome is still was that here. a similar situation for you? 1,000%. I never thought that my badge was going to work at CNN when I went into the building. <laughs> it's just a... Wow, man, the, the fake IDs these days. I was again. like, they're going to figure me out. They're going to find out. They're going to find out. Hold I am. Yeah. Um, my badge is magically going to stop working. It's going to totally make sense. Wow. And I went recently to go do a segment uh, for my latest book at CNN and I took a picture right by the security desk and right by the place where you scan your badge and yeah. I'm like you know I was so freaked out that this wasn't gonna work wow. and today I finally am like no no it's gonna work I belong here this yeah. is what I'm supposed to be yeah. I'm a visitor today this is real yeah so at what age did you leave LA you did the local community at 15 you yeah. then went to Chicago I went to Chicago How old? and uh Best guess. Yeah, I was I'm like, like 16. You. You're like, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was young. Okay. Um, and I... Is this when your mom like took you cross country? No. Okay. That was a whole other... Oh. That was like super young. Okay. Um, but I... Yeah, I wanted to get far away and... So you moved yourself to Chicago? Yeah. Solo? Yeah. Yeah, I bought socks for the first time. Good for you. I mean it. What about underwear? Did you leave that one out? Like, you gotta have me like, Dell. <laughs> I mean, it was the first time that I saw cold. Yeah. It's never too cold in LA to wear flip flops. I've only heard stories about Chicago, like the windy city. Yeah. Jandals? Pardon? Jandals? Is that? that? That's not really an Australian thing. Is that not? What no. is it? Sandals. We wear sandals oh, or thongs, but you guys call thongs. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I was just wearing my thong down to the shop. And I was like, you wore, a, you wore your thong to the shop? I was like, yeah, like every day. I was like, did people look at you? I was like, no, everybody wears thongs. Like, in public? It's like, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I wore thongs a lot growing up. Right. Yeah, and then, um, then I locked it up when yeah. it got cold out. Yeah, right. So you were quite a hippie child, were you? Like, kind of free and barefoot and... <laughs> no? No, I... <laughs> no, I... I, so, I was, like, yeah. a super serious kid. Okay. I was, like, valedictorian of my high school and wow. college. I know. And, so like, I say smart. that, but, you know, that and 350 will get me a soy latte across <laughs> the street. Like, nobody actually cares at this point as a grown-ass adult. Um, but, yeah, I just studied and I, like, hid in work. And then while I was in college. in Chicago, right? Yeah, while I was in college, so I worked So you got into Chicago studied. over there. Oh, sorry, you got yeah. into college in Chicago. Yeah. And what age were you when you got into college? Is this I was legal? super young. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of places that I worked in local news, like yeah. Lexington, Kentucky, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I don't know if I violated child labor laws okay. or something like that, but like I no. paid my dues in yeah. these small markets. Yeah. Um, and then I just, you know, got tape really quickly and just kept 
you know, submitting my tape to bigger and bigger markets. And when I was still at school, I think I was about 18, um, I went into this small broadcasting station in Chicago and I thought at that point I'm ready for big market Milwaukee um, at the time because the, the media markets go from about 200, which is the smallest, to one, which is New York. Right. And Milwaukee, I think, was like 30s or 40s. And I was like, I'm ready for this I'm big, ready time. For big time. Yeah, and they were like, I was like, oh, I'll take the train, I'll do anything. And I go in and they say, well, first of all, you don't know anything about geography. You can't take the train <laughs> every day. Um, and second, you don't get the job. And I was super devastated at the time um, in juxtaposition to when I got the job that I wasn't expecting when I was 15. And they said, but do you know anything about business news? And I was like, I hated business news. I didn't know shit about business news. My boyfriend in high school said he wanted to be a hedge fund manager. I thought he wanted to be in gardening. Like, <laughs> I knew 0.0 .0 about business news. I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna break out into hives. And I was like, absolutely. I love business news. I love it all day, every day. I read the Wall Street Journal for breakfast. It was like. And I lied. I totally lied. What, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. No one's ever done that to get a job before. Right, like, yeah. until I made it. I mean, I, I totally own it. <laughs> and then I was thrown on the floor of the Chicago Merc for this uh, network called First Business Network at right. the time, and I just went to the school of hard knocks. And so then what happened? And then I figured that money was just a language like anything else. Okay. We just don't have a Rosetta Stone for this language growing up. We right. learn like some BS stuff in school while wearing thongs. Is this um, when you started to identify perhaps patterns within your own life financially that just were either unhealthy or destructive or how did you how did you get there? Because I know well, your first book was a money book, right? Yes. Yeah. Rich did, Bitch. Rich Bitch. So how did that come about? So fast forward about a decade after that, um, okay. and I was anchoring on CNBC. Well, I'm curious now what happened in that decade. I didn't realize it was that far. <laughs> Is there a setup? Just give me the setup. We're really going into <laughs> yeah, the whole life story. Straight. I like it. <laughs> um, well, so after I was a business reporter, okay. I then went to CNN where they okay. hired me, I thought by mistake. I was there for four years in Atlanta. Um, and I Atlanta, anchored. CNN. Wow, well done. Yeah, headquarters, baby. And I, you. I know, um, <laughs> I anchored like the biggest stories of our time. Um, massive shootings, uh, international news, elections, and um, and then the financial crisis happened mm. and money was the story everybody was talking about and everybody became a business reporter again. And so I leaned into that. Um, also, my entire division got let go at CNN. So um, at the time I was like, okay, my career is over. Um, but in hindsight, it was actually the best thing that ever happened. So you happened. were maybe redundant along with a lot of other people? Yeah. Yeah, wow. And I got a job immediately in business news okay. here. So I moved to New York at the time um, and I was anchoring a super early morning show, but the only global show on the network, which is called Worldwide Exchange. Right. And yeah, we're covering, you know, world economic news and talking to CEOs and politicians every morning. And, um, and so you're getting the education of a lifetime, aren't you? Like you're at that point, I already knew what was up. Okay. Like I hopefully okay. knew. But also at the same time, I'm going to assume you're talking to industry leaders and titans and totally like access that most business people, entrepreneurs would love to have. And you're like, oh, that's just like my 11 a.m. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, you in many ways at the time consciously or maybe unconsciously use that like to your advantage to really learn the mechanics of business? Because you then obviously got into business for yourself. Well, there's always learning you can do, okay. right? I mean, it, it's a language like anything else. I spoke it and then yeah. I became fluent and then I spoke it to the world. I never thought I, I'm like the least likely person to be doing that. Uh, but at that point, you know, I really honed hopefully my uh, reporting skills yeah. and my interviewing skills where I was really listening to what people were yeah. saying instead of just waiting for my turn to talk. And I remember just asking like 
seemingly dumb questions because at that point I was so much more comfortable in my own skin. I knew my badge was going to work. Like the imposter syndrome went away. And I was just like, I don't understand what this person's saying. And I'm really smart and I know this stuff. And if I don't understand, then other viewers aren't going to understand either. So I kind of took an unconventional style around my reporting. And then I was like, I'm tired of talking to old rich white dudes about money. Um, I want to talk to the audience that needs it most, which is my former self. The girl who was so freaked out and scared about anything business related. I want to talk to her and I want to democratize this content for an audience that I think needs it most. So at what point did you have the itch like to either write a book or to run your own show, like to do your entrepreneurial, like had you had the entrepreneurial itch or had you had the book itch or? I was always entrepreneurial within a bigger company. So I was like an intrapreneur. So I started series at CNN and like at the time, CNN blogs started. I started a series called Young People Who Rock, which is a hilarious name, but (laughs) it's like an interview series um, where I interviewed different young people under 30 doing amazing things. It was my the first interview ever with Justin Bieber. We were like, wait, who is this guy? Yeah. Oh, what the... Yeah, don't. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what he did. And my booker at the time was like, I think you should interview this guy. He's trending on Twitter. Like, he's something to do with Usher. Totally. He totally flicked his hair. We got all these viewer questions about, like, will you date me? Um, And yeah, I remember being at home, like, updating the WordPress or whatever on CNN.com myself. You would think, like, there, it's all, there's all these big fancy things. Content teams. Yeah. But I was, I tried to be nimble and entrepreneurial within uh, a bigger company. And I did the same thing at CNBC. I started series. I flew around. I interviewed governors. I, um, you know, tried to innovate where I could. Uh, sometimes I pushed it. And um, and yeah, I think that at that point, I was 27. I still went back to anchor uh, Alan Bloomberg. So I could talk to sort of like these business leaders, but also the Wendy Williams audience yeah. or like the Us Weekly audience. So I, um, I tried to just talk about business across the spectrum from like The Economist to Us Weekly because money is the biggest story of our time. It touches everything. Every story I think goes back to money, whether it's stocks, bonds, spreads, yields, buns, whatever, currency, or how to get your friend to pay you back. And was this the genesis of the first book, consciously or unconsciously? Um, unconsciously at the time, I didn't know that I was building this brand. People were like, how did you do this? It was like this strategy. I'm like, nope, sure wasn't. (laughs) Um, I just, you know, I thought rich bitch is what I would have wanted. Um, I didn't know I was disrupting the like personal finance space. So you wrote that book for your younger self. Totally. Yeah. Swore in a finance book for the first time. I know. Wow. Super proud of that. Did that go over well? You know, I thought I was going to be a TV person and check the box and write a book and send it for Christmas or Hanukkah and call it a day. (laughs) And then it became a thing. It like hit the list right away. It sold out. It was like, I definitely wasn't expecting to write. So you didn't have an agent or anything? Oh, I had an agent. Like I had a bigger agent. Did they know it was going to move or it was just like... you really know there's, there's a gazillion and a half books yeah. in the world and then because normally Rich most Bitch, people let's be honest who hit the new york times bestsellers list, they've got a great pr campaign behind it well i had that also okay. for but, sure i had all the things okay yeah i i definitely like i went into it yeah. to win it but i didn't necessarily but to be fair there are many that. people that go into that with the pr campaign that never make the list it's hard. It's very hard. I'm, I'm, yeah. It's no joke. It's not a side hustle. I actually wrote about this in my second book, um, okay. like a confessions of how this actually happened. Because a okay. ton of people will ask me, like, how do I, you know, get on the list or get on, you know, Dr. Raz or Good Morning America or whatever. And I always go back and I say, like, write a good book. Like, hello, Captain Obvious. And also, <laughs> it's not a side hustle. If you really want it to be successful, it's a yeah. full-time hustle. And it took me 10 years to get a book deal. I had different iterations. I had four wow. different agents and proposals. and Before you published. Starts. Yeah. Rich Bitch. Yep. So Rich Bitch was a 10-year yeah. gig. 
Yeah. Wow, kudos. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was going to happen for me. There was a book that I sold before that called Making Bank, right. um, which was like all things to all people, fun, cool, finance. It would have been dead on arrival. <laughs> so thank God that didn't happen. I sold it to a publishing house and the editor left over the holidays. Okay. And so my book deal went away with it. And I was like devastated. Um, but, you know, people were going to have feelings about a book called Rich Bitch. Like, either yeah. you're going to love it or hate it. There was no great. Was that around area. the time when that terminology was being used across a range of different brands? Or were you one of the leaders? Because I know we had uh, the Skinny Bitch. I don't know if you got them over here. The Skinny Bitch uh, drinks. and Skinny Girl. Skinny Girl. Skinny Girl Wine. Is it wine? Yeah. Yeah, the Skinny Girl Wine. Uh, the book, Skinny Bitch, that came out from the yep. UK authors. Was it around that time or were you like one of the pioneers? Skinny Bitch of- had come out before that. Um, yeah. But at the time, you know, I, I wanted I guess what I'm asking is where did, the, where did the name come from? Like how did you, because it's a good name. Like Thank it's you. like a really. I'm, a, I'm not good at a lot, like I mentioned, but naming is something You keep saying that, but I'm, there's a lot of I'm things okay you're good at. Naming, you know, I, I think that the title, you know, it stood out. I wanted to have more controversy around it. Okay. I wanted people to like have more of a debate because that's going to spur yeah. more sales. And and I was here for it. At that point, I was like, bring it on. And I didn't really get as much pushback as I was hoping for. Because wow. I, you know, I really explained that I'm taking back this word and owning it as a badge of honor because I was called a bitch in a derogatory sense in wow. so many ways Strong along context. my yeah, career. Friend. Yeah. And I was like, if you're calling me a bitch and you mean that I'm ambitious and strong and want not only a seat at the table, but um, a voice, then I'm a bitch and I own that as a badge of honor and so many young, powerful women do as well. And there were a couple of producers who said like, I get it, like I get the concept. Um, There was one anchor I went on her show and she's like, "I, I see what you're doing but I don't like the title. And and I said, listen, the ends justify the means. If we can get a young woman to pick up a money book, who yeah. never imagined she yeah. picked up a money book otherwise, because that's who I was reaching. Somebody who didn't wasn't like perusing the personal finance section of Barnes & Noble, but went in and was like, oh, this sounds fun. This could be like, you know, more of a beach read than anything I would have imagined a personal finance book to be. Then we win. Then we win if we can get her to pick it up because of that. And it's so interesting to see what's happened in the publishing space since. You know, it is interesting because the rich bitch, it's it's not that I hadn't heard of you now on as we discuss. I'm like, yeah, actually, I did hear about this book. I remember (laughs) hearing about this book. But what's super interesting now is when we look at titles like Mark Manson, you know, the the subtle art of not giving a fuck, you know, international bestseller. There's really been a almost like a fourth wall broken when it comes to publishing. And yeah, I guess freedom of speech or freedom of curse. Yeah, I think it's like maybe over at this point because my last book, so I had Boss Bitch was my second one. And I thought, like you joked about it in the beginning, but Zen Bitch was actually on a short list of things. You've got to do Zen Bitch. I thought I was going to like continue this dummy series where I would have like a bitch for everything. Housing bitch, like mortgage bitch. Got it. You know, and this third one I thought was going to be happy bitch at first because it was going to be like a or balanced bitch or something like that and then we were just like we're over it like we're over the bitch thing and so because it was so saturated with like a ton of you're a badass and fuck this and shit this and I was like okay I'm like like, I'm gonna do something different this time at least you are the pioneer one of the pioneers so thanks pioneers get arrows that's (laughs) that's not what I meant so um uh Okay, just kind of flipping back to the news just for a quick second, being exposed to so much news at that anchor level, did you ever become cynical? You know, because you watch shows like um, The Loudest Voice, you watch shows like, uh, what was the one with Jeff Bridges, not Jeff Bridges, um, that killer, killer show uh, written by... Sounds really memorable It's amazing. (laughs) Jeff, what's his name? Like it's... Two seasons. It was the guy who wrote West Wing. Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin wrote it. Oh, oh the newsroom. The newsroom. Yeah. And you, know, you, you watch programs at like the newsroom, and like there's other programs coming through now where morning show even. Like, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Fucking amazing. Like, there seems to be <clears throat> like on the content consumption tide, there's content being produced that is showing a a side of broadcast where the, the, the journalists themselves and the newsreaders themselves like aren't necessarily like aligned with what's going on. So I'm curious to know if you did you become a little cynical in your time in the news or was it like 
you worked in a pretty straight and narrow kind of place. Uh, it's funny, on my new TikTok, um, I have as my bio is like same, same as Sloane Sabbath, but a little different. And she was the Olivia Munn character in the newsroom. Oh. She was the business reporter oh. um, who I love. She's like, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, your heart stopped beating. Oh my gosh, yeah, me she's too. Gorgeous. I agreed, one hundred percent. A girl. I can fell only in love drink. with that character. Totally. Yeah, nothing to do with her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when I was in news, I, um, you know, it definitely affected me. I covered the Virginia Tech shootings at the time, it was right. the largest massacre in the states. Um, I covered the, you know, Osama bin Laden in the middle of the night. I got whoa, whoa, woke up um, in local news. I covered like triple homicides and floods and fires and crazy stuff. So you've stuff. seen a lot. I've seen a lot. Yeah. And, and it's, my question is less about that and more about cynical, the, the cynicism of the of the news industry and the, the quality of the content that's coming out in terms of, you know, aligned with you and the accuracy with, with, with the message that you're sharing. And I'm not trying to blow up anything. And if there's anything that comes up you're uncomfortable with, we can absolutely cut it. I don't get that uncomfortable. Okay. Try I'll harder. Try harder. <laughs> um, you know, I think when I was at CNN, if this is what you're getting at, like was I at the time disillusioned by the state of what we were covering? You know, I think that we covered like Paris Hilton leaving jail. We covered like Anna Nicole Smith's death. news. And I was, I, I was a little disillusioned okay. because I went in thinking like, I want to be Christiane Amanpour and, you know, like I said, cover the first draft of history and we're doing really important stuff here. Um, and at the time, I remember thinking this is not, you know, the, the CNN that covered the Gulf War. This is not mm. that. Okay. And I think it, we were in a transition time of trying to figure out you know, the balance between infotainment and um, opinion journalism. Like Anderson was covering Katrina at the time and started crying or giving opinions. And that hadn't happened in news until then. I mean, sleeveless started becoming a thing, which I was there for. Um, it was changing. And when I got to CNBC, I remember looking at the Today Show and seeing like the Kardashians hosting um, or like Mario Lopez, you know, getting the extra job, which is great, and but also random. And and I was like, this is all changing. And what the trajectory used to be was like local news, network news, go be like a White House correspondent, go do the morning show, then do the evening news. And that my agents at the time when I left CNBC were like, you're making the biggest mistake of your career. You're on this trajectory. And I was like, this fucking trajectory is over. Like, it's we're ready to get off. done. Yeah. Like, it's not that anymore. It's, you know, a career in the media is more like a rope swing or rock climbing than a ladder. I mean, mm. what I was seeing at the time, it's like, you need some subject matter expertise or you're done. Like, you're commoditized. I couldn't sit in, you know, in front of, a camera and tell those aforementioned old rich white dudes what the Dow and the NASDAQ were doing and like think that I was somehow special. They could have plucked me out and put somebody else in and talked about what the Dow was doing. And that, mm. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in having my own voice. And I think that that at the time, I had an inkling that this was the way to have longevity within media. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I knew it was changing, but I, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know what I was going to be building, but I knew I had to build something in yeah, order to okay. survive. And so how did you then go on to com commercialize? Did you just go straight into the author space and you focus on you know, books, speaking, education? Like what happened from there? Book comes out, it's a hit. What do you do next? Yes. So then I, I think of you know, the book says births. I've never birthed humans, but I've birthed yes. now three and a half or four book babies. <laughs> um, and they don't have an epidural for that. And I think that like rich bitch was really hard to get out. And, uh, and boss bitch was like, it came out in the cab on the way to the hospital or something. Like I didn't even realize it was happening. Wow. Um, yeah, okay. And we continued on with that momentum. And this last book was probably the hardest um, of all of them to get out. But, you know, I continued on to try to build that brand or right through different verticals. Um, yeah. Online education became more of a thing only recently. Okay. And then I just wanted to create powerful business adjacent, money adjacent content uh, across all mediums. So online, on TV, on print, 
It's interesting, especially when you're talking about the trajectory at CNN, like because now you don't need to be, you know, a journalist with a, a great look to be a reporter. You just need a mobile phone and access to Twitter. Totally. You know, or access, and now you don't even need to be a politician to be a president these days. Like you literally can be a reality TV star as a result of, you know, social media. And so you've you've seen a shift in obviously the the, the consumption of media, and you've kind of moved with that shift, which is really quite. It's, it's really quite smart. You did it clearly at the right time. Well, I remember at it was all CNN. Right? Yeah, iReport had launched. I don't know if iReport is still a thing because everybody is iReport. iReport was an initiative where citizen journalists could cover news and send yeah. it in and then they could get on CNN and stuff like that. And I was like, fuck this. You know how much I paid for journalism school at Northwestern? Like, I didn't need all that. That was like the dumbest thing I've ever done. I put some meme out there and it was like <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever done for money and me. And I have my like cap and I gown. I, I, <laughs> I, like, yeah. I would have told yeah. my former self, like, just start working, which is what I did. Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to start working early on and getting that practical experience but I definitely saw all of that changing citizen journalism on the rise yeah, right. and um, you know I I was an early adopter to Twitter and I remember getting notes from standards and practices at CNN being like what is she doing she's putting out news that's not on the air like tell her to stop and I remember having like lawyers and stuff like come in while I was anchoring and then what ended up happening was like Twitter became on the big screen <laughs> like it went balls to the wall with like the Twitter stuff but at the time like I didn't know wow what was going on there that's so interesting but so I did. something I've heard you reference a, a couple of times now is your is your childhood and trauma. At what point during your professional um, coming out? Because and I don't want to say professional entrepreneurial coming out. Did you start to realize, wow, I've actually got some stuff that I'm hanging on to here? Because you know, oftentimes people look at success as the panacea, success is the medicine, work is the the, the, the medicine, and so we we trudge, 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 and then we go, I'll be fixed once I get to the anchor yeah. at CNN, my million dollars, whatever it is, the house. And then they get there and they go, oh, shit, like we had said before, fuck, I'm still just as insecure as I was before. <laughs> at what point did you go, okay, wow, I've done all these stuff, but something still doesn't feel right. I want to I want to perhaps take a different take. I've got to do something different. When was that? When did that come into play? You know, I thought I would be happy when I got to CNN, when I got to CNBC, when I made a certain amount of money, and I was never happy. It always became another goal, another bar to reach. I never got my brain to the other side. And while I was promoting Boss Bitch, I had a nationally syndicated show that was like a Shark Tank for kids. I had these books. I had seemingly from outward appearances, all the things. And I was miserable. And... I had a complete mental, emotional, physical breakdown that stemmed from burnout that I didn't even know it was burnout at the time and an emergency admittance to the psych ward that made me rethink everything. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I was completely stressed out. How old were you? It was, gosh, it was a few years ago. I was in my 30s. Um, And it made me rethink everything in my life. And at that moment, I was this you know, the queen boss bitch pe- preaching badassery to women wow. and how to get their careers together. And at four o'clock in the morning when I was in the emergency room, you know, with a full bottle of Ambien that I was fully intending to take and my shrink and my assistant canceling everything, I realized the thesis of what my third book ended up being is that self-care is the biggest asset or liability mm. in your career. And when it's off, it can bring you to rock bottom like it did for me. That was my personal rock bottom. And when it's on point, it can bring you more success. But that- Was there a trigger that kind of, you got to the point where something was this, was that last little straw that just went ting and everything on? I- one of, my fav- one of my favorite lines in the book, because I've thought a lot about this, of course, in, in the therapy and the, you know, going to Bali and every, you know, <laughs> guru and sh- shaman I've ever, you know, seen and tried to like really understand and hack happiness and balance in like not a woo-woo way, but a way that I, I needed okay. that information. So I needed to understand. But I say that my breakdown wasn't a spontaneous combustion precipitated by a single event, but a lifetime of smoldering embers that finally caught fire and incinerated everything in their path. I love that. And I I think about that visual a lot because I've really thought a lot about how this So it's a total rebirth, like a total phoenix moment. I will rise. 
Yeah. <laughs> I rise. Yeah. Here I am. And so what came out of that? Like, cause up until that point, um, had you ever done like therapy before? Had no. you done self-development, personal self-care? Like, no. right. So this was new. Right now. And so. And I did out of necessity. I had no other choice. Okay. And so what did you learn about yourself? What so did you many find? Things. Like what were the, when you were like looking through the ashes of what was coming out, what did you find as the key things you went, oh shit, I need to do work on that. Oh shit, that. What were the things that you saw? Okay, these were contributing factors. These are my wounds. Now I gotta do my work. I didn't realize that PTSD was the diagnosis that people who didn't go to war could have. And that's what I had and that's what I resonated with. And it made a lot of sense because there were times in my life that I had, it's called hyperarousal in the DSM, um, but not the sexy kind, like (laughs) times of, you know, like hyperactivity and hiding in work and then times of, you know, depression and many rounds in the ring with darkness. And I, I could never explain it. And it wasn't that I was chronically depressed, but I had long periods of depression. And when I had the PTSD diagnosis, it made a lot more sense. I could look my problems in the eye and I I didn't actually look at it as a problem. I looked at it as one of my biggest superpowers because it made me who I am. Mm. I don't wish I was different. I don't wish I didn't have it. You know, I wouldn't have this platform that I have right now had I been different, had I been more balanced. And so I looked at it as the superpower. And I realized though that there is no external solution to an internal problem. And that's what I was looking for. Wow. Those don't exist. So when you got that diagnosis, what was your first response? Oh, fuck, no, I don't have PTSD. Like, No, I, I, it resonated with me a lot. I ended up um, getting out of the hospital and needing to go to an outpatient program. Yeah. So I really, like, I became valedictorian of the psych ward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used those skills. It was crazy. You're amazing. I, like, I had my little notebooks, all my worksheets and books and stuff like that. And I took dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, in an outpatient program that really changed my life. And it taught me skills because all of this stuff is skills-based. And that's how my brain works. I'm like, give me skills, give me me steps. Like, exactly. And when I learned emotional regulation and interpersonal effectiveness and all these things, I was like, oh my gosh, we should have learned this stuff in school. Like, yes, I've been saying for years, we should have learned to budget and how to do our taxes and business plan. Like, if I'm in charge of the world, that's what we're teaching kids. But also, like, these skills are probably going to affect your career more than anything else. Pausing before an email. Like, all of these things that you can break down in steps. Mindfulness. Like, that made me a different person, a different person in business, a different person in my personal life. Wow, that's incredible. everything. Um, I can relate because I remember when I got my PTSD diagnosis, oh. I was in denial because I had done, like, I thought, like a fuck ton of work. You know, I, I got to where I had it and it was during my separation with my wife. We're just doing some counseling just to make the, keep the separate, like, keep the things moving in the right direction because we had a very, very good separation. And yeah, after four sessions with this therapist, she's like, I'm just letting you know you've been living with undiagnosed PTSD. And I'm wow. going to assume based on your history for at least 20 years. And I remember my first, I like the first response was I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, I know myself better oh, than anyone. Like, it was a denial. total moment of ego, but I think it was context-based because it was, okay. you know, it was quite a vo- emotional period of time. Mm-hmm. But I left uh, that session and I started going, I got curious. I was like, I started looking at PTSD mm-hmm. and I looked at the symptoms. I was like, oh, fuck. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. And then I started talking to people, like randomly, like, bumming to people and like, oh, yeah, I've got PTSD. I'm treated. I was like, tell me about it. I'd tell me about the story. I was like, shit, I do that. Like, and then it was revolutionary because I was like, wow, now I know what I can work on. Like it gave me, yes. gave me a step. I was like, okay, I've got something I can put my foot on now to, to leverage up. And again, I'm very much like you. It's like I saw it as a superpower, but I just hadn't, didn't have a name for it. And now I'm like, oh, my God, it's such a incredible gift. So I really, I, re- I really resonate with your story. Thank yeah, you I really sharing. get it. I think we're more than labels. I think that, you know, there's think, this whole movement, like we're more than labels, 100%. But also when you name it, it takes away some of its power. It does. I, and I think that's important. I think it's important we don't get stuck on labels, mm. but we use them as like a, as a flashlight. To yeah. Go, Let's look at this. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been so helpful for me. And so you've conti- obviously continued to do the self-development work, the self-care work. Um, like when you treated your PTSD, like what were some of the things you did? You did the, bi- what was it? It was 
dialectical behavioral dialectical therapy. behavioral therapy which, yeah what's that is i've actually like that's oh, it's new... awesome now yeah. lady gaga is talking about it um i just saw her out in the media which okay. she's actually doing an amazing job talking about how that's this is a her. treatment for ptsd um it's a treatment i think for everyone there's cognitive behavioral therapy okay. there's dialectical behavioral therapy um and dialectics mean that two things can be true at the same time okay. so you can love what you do and, and hate, hate your job you yeah. there's like no app necessarily absolute wow. and okay. so holding those so two it's a balancing things, therapy yeah that's so interesting yeah okay and and so it gives you the skills have you tried edmr did you try at any point yeah EDMR? Okay. yes i've been going through active like trauma therapy and emdr okay. um would you like to know the thing that like nailed my ptsd like literally got rid of all the tell symptoms? me everything yes because I had um, like symptomatic, I'd have a trigger. It would normally be something emotional, yeah. and then I'd like have, I like a boom, and I'd go into fight or flight. And sometimes I'd be uh, plus one hundred heartbeat for like yeah. five, six days, seven days straight. And like I'm functioning, but my body's like, oh, we're at war. Yeah. And even as I was doing the EDMR, it was starting to calm down. But I did psychedelic and MDMA therapy. Mm. Gone. Wow, it's Gone. on my list. Haven't had. We'll talk more. About uh, this. Haven't had a, a PTSD attack in. It's got to be like nine months now. Yeah. Wow. You did it once? No, I did three sessions. Okay. <clears throat> um, very educated. Like I didn't sure. just jump on the dark neck and, oh, let's get some LSD and right. let's party at home. Yeah. Like I, I really, I, you know, I did the process. I studied Fatiman. I studied what the work that mm -hmm. Ferris had done. And he put me on, just by studying Fatiman's work, the Psychedelic Explorers Guide, put me onto a whole bunch. And I did literally probably almost 12 months of research, like dedicated, obsessive, you know, minutiae research before I was like, yep, okay, like I want to give this a shot. And it was like life-changing. And I'm sure you've probably looked at the, yeah. the statistics of yeah. the MDMA talk therapy versus just traditional talk yep. therapy. It's, it's phenomenal. And I like, I, I can say hand on heart, yeah, it absolutely works. Wow. Yeah. Are you open to that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's on my list. I have okay. different places that I've already been talking about. Well, you about. mentioned shaman before. Like, has plant medicine been a part of your journey at this point? or It hasn't as much. Okay. You know, ayahuasca's on the list, all the things. Like, I'm open to trying everything. Um, you know. If you're called, I should say, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's not for everybody. I'm open to it. Yeah. You know, I've tried a ton of different things. And, um, you know, I wanted something that felt more like a guidebook or a manual to like figure this out mm. and that didn't exist and so yeah i went to bali i went to miraval and like all did equine therapy and like which actually really helped me you, you did it too well, actually... oh my god we have, now we're just starting the podcast <laughs> i feel like <laughs> like <laughs> oh i've got a whole story there yeah Classic story. Tell me, every, can I can yeah, I take the reins and now so, yeah, yeah, conduct this absolutely. interview? The short version is, have you heard of a guy, a horseman called Pat Pirelli? No. It's like he's one of the top horse whisperers. Have you heard Wyatt Webb? Uh, no. I ha uh, hang on, he's the original. Yeah, yes, he's, he's like the cowboy OG. Oh, is that Monty? I can't remember. But um, short version, I dated Pat Pirelli's niece. He's like one of the top horse whisperers okay. on the planet. I dated his niece for like just four years and as a natural consequence I was introduced to horsemanship wow. which in essence is equine therapy yeah. because you're working with the energy of the animal yeah and you can't influence the animal you're not influencing the animal through behavior you're influencing it through mm. energy so you're essentially learning how to get a horse to do everything you want by not touching it yeah. and just directing it with your energy and it's just like wow and then I did uh, I guess you could say I did the same with dogs because I learned how to train horses I had been a dog trainer I was more interested in the dog psychology side and that's why yeah, when I kind of moved into the human space, I was like, oh, wow, humans are kind of like just sophisticated dogs and horses. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> well, in reality, when you look at the neurology, human beings, especially kids, like uh, kids are just a puppy with a neocortex. Mm. Like, and when you understand that developmental side, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of, to be able to nurture. Because mm. yeah. you never, like, again, how, how effective is it to yell at your dog when it does something wrong? Like, how effective is it to lock a dog in a room when it doesn't when it's not you know you've got to learn how to work with the dog and it's the same with with humans with people totally yeah and there's a, and horses don't have shame they're not like oh man no. i have a fat ass today they're they not like ego. shaming they're in the moment they're yeah. in the moment dogs they're in the moment they're like, not holding a grudge against no. some other horse who how like whacked him with his tail right that's like, right dude piss on what i don't remember pissing on your carpet so many great lessons yeah. everything i learned about boundaries and intentions i learned from a horse i'm really enjoying this conversation oh, so yeah very much so tell me tell me what you learned 
about you? Oh, no. no. I mean, <laughs> is, is this a test? <laughs> no. That was quick. A recap. No, to, about the horses. I did this oh, whole the thing. The, the equine stuff? Yeah. Well, to me, it was really understanding. Because when you work with dogs energetically, when you work with dog, uh, horses energetically, it's a leadership exercise. It's not an exercise in technique. It's not an exercise in sit, do this. It's not sure. an exercise in domination. It's an exercise in collaboration, but it's an energetic mm. collaboration. Like it's learning how to work with an animal so that it trusts you. And it knows, the animal knows, whether it's a dog or a horse, that what you're doing is for the best interest of the animal, not because you're trying to right. dominate or control. Because if you try and dominate or control anything, what does it do? Yeah. It rebels. Yeah. If you try and dominate or control a child, like you may have that opportunity for the first 13 years of that young human's life because it's of size and intellectual power and ability to manipulate. But once they reach a stature where they can think for themselves and they've got stature, they'll rebel because they don't trust that you've been making decisions in their best interest. And so I apply the same technology with my son. I've got a beautiful six-year-old son who I have 60% of the time. Like when I work with him, I'm never, I don't lie to him. Like we never lie. I don't manipulate. I don't dominate. I don't use aggression. I never use physical strength as a, as a form of uh, discipline. We talk. Like we talk. And so as a result, like I had this conversation with a mother yesterday She's telling me how it's really difficult for her to get her daughter to get in the car to go to school. And so she often ends up having to pick her up and put her in the car and there's tears and everything else. And I said, oh, okay. She says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm late for school pretty much every day for that reason. She goes, well, what do you do? I said, well, I just keep talking to my son and we have a dialogue about why he doesn't want to go and we discuss why he has to. And we have a real conversation till we get to the point where he agrees we should probably get in the car together. And so as a result, he will get in the car, no tears, no screaming. We might be 10 minutes late for school. But what's happened over the last six years, it's now got to the point where he understands we've got to go to school and we don't have to argue about it because we, have, we can have a conversation. Mm. I don't have to control him. I don't have to dominate him. I don't have to use aggression or threat or manipulation. We use conversation. And it's the same with the dog because, you know, I think kids often inherently learn not to trust people because they feel the intent of their parent. They can feel the intent of their parents like, look, I just need to get this fucking done right now. Like, it's, I'm, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. Or I'm, the parent's yelling at the child and it's like, it's got nothing to do with you. The child's upset. Yes, it didn't get a toy, but to that child, that's the equivalent of you fucking getting your Louis Vuitton handbag set on fire. Just be there for the child. Okay, don't make it about you because you feel bad because your friends are looking because your child is screaming. You've got a little human right now that is actually feeling really unsafe. Just be there for that little human. Make them feel safe. Fuck everyone else. It's not about you. It's not about them. Mm. It's about the child. And so when you understand that, and I did that with horses. I did that with dogs. And, and so for me, when I learned that with humans, it, when you bring it all together, the best thing I learned and the leadership is about trust. Like if you can't get a, whole, a dog to trust, your horse to trust, your child to trust you, or a team member or your partner to trust you, you'll never be able to lead at a high level in an authentic way. So yeah, that was my biggest lesson. I love that. Yeah. And it's so incumbent on the parents because, again, we don't learn so this. So much responsibility. We can't find a child that's a child's fault. Like Cesar Milano. Do you follow Cesar Milano? <laughs> I don't, but... He's hilarious because he goes, I don't train dogs. He goes, I rehabilitate dogs and I train humans. And like, because oh. I do a lot of work with parents... Okay. Because I am a parent. And it's, I, yeah. Our most popular content is parenting, but 90% of my clients are business owners with kids. And so as a result, a lot of my work that I do with clients is helping them how to learn how to become better parents in the process of running their business at the same time. Because it's a, it's a tough juggle. It's hard. It is. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because in when I turned 30, like my biological clock was crazy i wanted to like steal babies from the street i was just like ravenous i was like i'm not gonna be that girl but biology really takes over and i just look back and at the time i was like why am i not you know having kids with my boyfriend at the time i was like so hungry to also start a family and fix what had happened to me and all of that stuff yeah. but like i had to parent myself yes yeah. I was like, I'm. When did you realize that? Like, when ready. did you realize there was a wounded little girl in there that needed a parent, like a strong parent, and you had to be that parent? Like, yeah, it was only in the last few years wow. where I needed to teach myself all of the things that a parent would have. I've gone through and done reparenting and like memory yeah. clearing exercises and all sorts of stuff wow. where I'm like really reframing yeah. what had happened to me and. And then also understanding that like you're only responsible for 50% of a relationship and yeah. like. You clean up your side of the street. I started going to meetings a lot. Um, adult Children of Alcoholics it has been really helpful for oh. me. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot that I felt like I was alone with, and I'm really not. Um, and all of the, you know, people that are at meetings, like, through 
a lot of different kinds of dysfunctions have the same patterns. Yeah. And so I used to think, I don't want to go to group therapy or like, I don't want to go to group workout classes. Like I'm not, I'm not a group workout class kind of girl, but there's something really nice about having mm. that community as well. And, and I think, cleaning up your side of the street. Yeah. And staying in your learning. And that was one for me, like learning how to stay in my own lane, mm. you know? And so some of your self care routines, like you've mentioned a couple now already, are there any other things that you do just to make sure that you are number one and you get taken care of? So I always feel the difference. In an ideal world, I'll wake up and not touch my phone for about yeah. an hour, um, not go into other people's agendas, really focus on what my intention is. I can feel the difference when I do a gratitude journal and when I don't. And that's why I came out with a journal because it really changed my life and my perspective throughout the day. And then you find yourself looking for those things throughout the day. So we've mm. seen, of course, dopamine is not just from pleasure, sex, you know, shopping, drugs, whatever, but searching for the pleasure, which is why we're so addicted to TikTok and, <laughs> and other things. Yeah. Uh, and so I find myself searching more for the gratitude, which is a great cycle to get into. And then at night, the same thing of, you know, I used to not be able to sleep and was on this ambient Adderall cocktail. And I was like, why can't I sleep? Maybe it's because I'm shining a bright light into my eyeball mm. from like three inches away. And, you know, listen, I don't do that every day. Um, I definitely have more good days than bad days. So I consider that a win. Yeah. But I was on the press tour for this last book and on this show in L.A., um, and they were asking all the guests, like, what do you do for your morning routine? Same type of thing. I'm like, oh, I should really, like, talk about the book and, like, push that. And I'm a terrible liar. Like, I can't. <laughs> I just can't keep up with lies at all. So yeah. I just don't do it's it. I just so say true. it. I, yeah. The only way I know how to tell a story is to tell it honestly. And so they asked, like, the other guests. And, and the first guy is like, yeah, I, like, write down what I'm manifesting, the top five things. I drink lemon water and whatever. And the anchor was actually really smart. She was like, well, what are those five things? He's like you know, just look at it every day. I'm like, bullshit, dude. Okay. The next person was like, I drink lemon water. I run five miles. I'm like, they get to me and I say, I said, I took my eyelashes off from the night before. I scrolled on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> to find my ex-boyfriend's page. I ended up on his new girlfriend's like sister's cousin's dog's page. I drank a venti red eye and like I tried to make something out of my life and there was no lemons left in LA. So I couldn't drink any lemon water. And I was oh, like, you know, gold. that's real. That's and beautiful. I thought you know, my book was supposed to come out in March because in my mind, um, my first book came out in March. My second book came out two Marches later. And my third book was supposed to come out two Marches after that. And right as we were going to print, I felt like I was on the verge of relapse again. I felt like I was an imposter, like yeah. that imposter syndrome that hadn't been around for years was like, how are you going to talk about balance? How are you going to talk about avoiding burnout? Like you're a hot mess. And I would think, I'll get back to this balance stuff after the book. I know what a book tour is like. Like, yeah. I'll get back to that stuff after the chaos. Um, so I pushed the book out six months, actually, um, which is something my former self would have never done. Wow. I went off the grid. I literally read my own book. And that's not like a marketing spin no, thing at all. It. I was like, damn, who wrote this? This is really good. <laughs> I did all the exercises. And I wrote an epilogue at the end that talked about that. And I said balance and chaos have to coexist. Mm. They they must. You can't have they balance do. or chaos. It has to be balance and chaos. Like it's always gonna, chaos is a game of whack-a-mole. When one thing happens, if it's not the book tour, it's some other launch, it's always going to be something. Yeah. Like you have to incorporate this stuff daily. I had a lifetime of terrible habits. I was mad at myself because I was like, I got woke. Like, I'm good. I found balance. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. No, ma'am. I, I look at balance more as a verb than a noun. Mm. And I think we often use it as a noun. Like, we found balance. It's right there under the couch. We're done. No, I had a lifetime of bad habits. And only a lifetime of good habits is enough to counteract that. Yeah, right. And so I, yeah, I realized that if I have more good days than bad days, I'm winning. And it's not about regaining it's not about having balance all the time but having the skills to regain your balance when you inevitably will lose it because you will so last question um and i was thinking about this really hard no I'm like, i don't want it to end i don't want to well we can go keep going <laughs> if you want i'm just respecting you've got a meeting at 11. um but i'm i'll do there is one question i want to ask you because obviously you know with the career that you've had like you've 
you've kind of reached the great heights that many young women and many young men would probably want to want to and still want to achieve when it comes to um, you know not just the anchor position but also the the brand like because I think what's happening now is there's probably a whole raft of or a new wave or a new generation of people that once upon a time may have wanted to be a broadcaster and now they want to be an influencer mm. because essentially when we look at what broadcasters are when you look what anchors are they're just professional influencers that have been paid by a network to you know to share content that they distribute and so when I look at what you've done I'm like wow you really were like one of the early pioneers in the influencer space and I'm going to assume you learned all sorts of stuff when it came to privacy when it came to um, taking risks when it came to timing when it came to um, yeah just knowing what to say when to say it. when you look at everything from a branding perspective from a personality perspective if you were to give your younger self who perhaps is growing up in this age is like well maybe I don't want to become a broadcaster but I want to I want to share a message I want to share you know something with the world that's meaningful what advice would you give perhaps that 15 year old version of yourself who's like oh my god I can do this I can do what I want what would you say to them you know I've had a lot of um, self-deprecating comments through our interview about that I'm not good at anything. And I'm not mean to myself these days, but I'll explain that I mean that I become an expert in something new every single day. I feel like I am constantly learning. I feel like nobody's an expert in anything if they feel like they say they are, like run the other way because... You know, nobody's had anything figured out yet. And so that's what I tell my former self. Like, be okay with the fact that you're constantly going to be learning and iterating through your career. And also don't be a mean girl to yourself. Mm. I think we all have a mean girl or a mean guy inside yeah. our head. And I used to have a terrible like audio tape that played in my head of something. If I lost a deal or something happened at work, I would just rail on myself. You suck. You're the worst. You're going to die alone. You're going to be broken homeless <laughs> and live in the gutter. But like, if your best friend or your sister or whatever like, came to you and said, I, I messed up at mm. work, are you going to say, you suck, you're the worst, you're going to die alone, be broken homeless and live in the gutter and like die with cats? No, you're going to be like, baby, it's okay. You're the best. Like, let me give you a hug. I didn't do that to myself. I think a lot of us don't do that to ourselves. And I literally put a ring on it. I saw that story. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I was looking. So that was a declaration of self-love? It was. Yeah, nice. And it is. And I look at it all the time and you know maybe one day I'll have a ring on this hand I don't know but I'll always keep the one in this hand because the most important relationship is the one you have with yourself the most important commitment is the one you make for yourself literally yeah. till death do you part no one <laughs> else ain't no one else look I yeah uh, I want to I want to rip these out <clears throat> before we go oh, do you mind yay. of course okay so oh my god like I said you've, you've written a library <laughs> so we've got um rich bitch this is the first book so yeah, that just for? re-came out, actually. Oh, so it's been revised? Yeah, so four years later, this was the second edition. So who should read Rich Bitch? Anyone who wants to be a rich bitch. Anyone <laughs> yeah, like, it's basic personal finance stuff. Well, then we've got, what was the next book? Yeah, Boss Bitch, the Boss yellow bitch. one. Who needs to read Boss Bitch? Where Any I'm sitting bitch? on a, the, di- the photographer was like, just sit on the desk for one of them, we won't use it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they did. Um, this is actually broken out into three sections, so it's... Um, becoming the boss in different aspects of your life and we go through different stages like we've been talking about throughout the course of this interview so what it's like to be a boss of you and your family be a boss within a bigger company and then starting your own business and we I I mean who knows I could go work for someone else I could become the boss if someone wants to knock me up of my family and like take time off or whatever and all these different permutations in between so it's kind of like choose your own adventure I love the 12 step plans yeah they're all 12 step plans oh yeah I love the 12 steps yeah the first step is admitting you have a problem Okay, so after Boss Bitch, then came... Then Becoming Superwoman. Becoming Superwoman. And you've got, obviously, the Becoming Superwoman journal as well. Yeah. And this is a part of, like, the book, like, learning how to journal? Yeah, it's a companion. It it talks about, you know, the the steps that I take um, to figure out balance through the day. Um, I have, like, a Weight Watchers type system that I've come up with. That's, like, give yourself 10 points, because balance looks different at different times. Yeah. and it could look up different every day. And when I was in my book tour, for instance, like I gave myself 10 points. The only requirement is you give at least one point to emotional wellness. Otherwise, it will require all 10 points. Right. And so I gave myself a couple of emotional wellness points. And the rest were like career, 
points. I wasn't dating. Um, I was a terrible friend, but like I forgave myself for what I wasn't focused on then. And I was just very clear that that's what I was And so where doing. can we get our hands on these incredible pieces of literature? <laughs> <laughs> um, everywhere books are sold. Okay. Uh, What's your website? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever. Um, NicoleLappin.com. Okay. You're on obviously all the social handles. All the social handles, okay. new on TikTok. Fantastic. Pretty so you gave me, it. which one did you give me? Becoming Superwoman? Yes. So we might do a giveaway. So for the person who does the, well, let's ask a question. What would be a question that you would ask of a young Superwoman? Yeah, what's your superpower? Oh, what's your superpower? Best superpower gets the book. Let's well, because it's Superwoman. So it's like killing the idea of Superwoman, the character who tries to be it all and do it all and okay. be all things to all people because okay. she's nothing to herself. Yep. And then putting your oxygen mask on first before helping Ooh. others. So being a super space woman, it's okay. not just for my legs on the cover. It's like <laughs> legit. It's a reason. You do. Because oh, when you came in, I was like, where's the cape? Like, I thought you were a superpower. I have so many cape dresses. Best, now. most should... unique superpower. And we'll send that book out to you. Yeah. Nicole, this is, I think this is like the, the first of any conversations to come. Many, like, many. I really enjoyed this wait. conversation. So did I. Yeah. What's funny is we didn't get to this part of my life story, but I was thinking about it as you were holding the books because you were like, where can I get these lovely pieces of literature? And I wanted to be a writer when I was really young. Like right. I wanted to be a poet. Wow. Um, and so I started actually as like wanting to be an English major and sitting under a tree and writing all sorts of poetry. And I became a writer, just not the kind I expected. Wow. And so I think when a lot of entrepreneurial like personalities say, go out and do what you love, like YOLO, FOMO, burn your corporate bra, if not now, when? Like I didn't have the luxury to go be a poet. I needed to pay the bills. And so I figured out the shaded part of the Venn diagram that I had. That's the truth. Like. I didn't want to talk about business at all, but I had that opportunity and I looked at the things that I really like to do and I found the shaded part of that Venn diagram. That's so cool. So ultimately I became a writer, just kind of a sellout writer, not, not winning any <laughs> awards, but getting now, the job done. And you've now got a new fan. Thank you so well, much for coming you. in. Likewise. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Guys, thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.